From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey with the whole crew. Eric Bradlow from his Huntsman Hall office. Shane Jensen from the home office. Adi Weiner from his all-too-common office transport somewhere, this case a train, to points north. Maddie Dat's floating around somewhere in the background. Glad you guys are with us. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we usually do. We are coming to you via Zoom, as we usually do. We do have an in-person, in-studio session scheduled coming up soon. We're always excited when we get that. Later this month, we'll be in person for uh, an unusual week together in Philadelphia. We are at a special time on the sports calendar. Guys, I, I, I ran across an interesting piece of trivia from Joe Pompliano on Twitter. Joe Pompliano points out that yesterday was a very special day. I think he called it the sports sports solstice, sports equinox. Sports e- must be sports equinox. It's the only day of this year and only the 29th day ever, supposedly, where all four major North American sports had a game. Isn't that cool? That's the time of year we're at. It was a World Series game and a Monday night football game and, of course, some NBA and NHL action. So that was a sports equinox last night on Monday. Speaking of Monday, the Rangers managed to get past the Diamondbacks in game three out in Arizona, kept their road record in this postseason perfect. Three nothing. There was a little hint of making it tight there at the end, but mostly the Rangers got up and just kind of kept them down. I'm curious, you baseball guys, I know y'all don't really have a dog in this fight, but I'm curious how you're feeling about baseball, how you're feeling about the World Series. This time last week, we still had the Phillies in it. I think Eric was in his gear. He was about to go to the park. Tell me tell me where you are in baseball right now. I mean, Phillies, Phillies well, versus Rangers would be a lot more exciting in my first, in my personal opinion. But I mean, it's still that the Diamondbacks are a fun team to watch them running all over the place, playing great defense. So it's, it, it's really, it's, it, it's, it's fun baseball. I just obviously was rooting pretty hard for the Phillies there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to just, you know, follow up by pointing out that I think it's, you know, interesting that all the, all the favorites are gone. Um, they were gone even before uh, the last round, but the Phillies were the last sort of giant team that got eliminated. I wonder whether or not it's the it's the new rules and how the new rules are having this if it's it's a, it's a measurable effect or something we can attribute or is it just simply just a, a randomness of the damn playoffs as, uh, as I mean, Shane would say. Yeah, and I mean I think it is probably mostly randomness. Like it's funny because I did I did kind of uh, see somewhere posted that basically the Diamondbacks and Rangers the one team those thing those two random teams have in common is they're I think the top two defensive teams in the in in MLB and certainly we have changed the rules to at least try and emphasize defense a little bit more and you know obviously the Diamondbacks also base steal like crazy so you know they do seem to they've got the feel of something that seems like a new wave of how baseball might be played in the future I just you know yeah, I will, we're, I'm laughing even as you said that, Audie, because like we've caught ourselves doing this before. I mean, again, when the Royals won the World Series, what like ten years ago, we're like, oh yeah, it's all about defense and 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 bullpen. And I feel like we're probably, we could probably fa- fall into that same trap again now. What I think has has struck me is how you know the fortune of these playoffs can change on in a split second. Like you talked about the Phillies yeah. being eliminated, uh, Craig Kimball blew, blew two of those games. And especially the one in the ninth inning, if he doesn't blow that game, the Phillies are up three to one in that series and end that series. So they probably win that series um, in this series. Let's remember the Rangers were down five to three in the ninth inning of game one. And Seager hits a two run home run um, mm-hmm. and ties the game, which they won in the 11th on another home run by Garcia. So, mm-hmm. you know, we don't know that that would have ended. It certainly would have ended it. But I'm just saying those two swings of the bat changed the fortune, at least of those games of the World Series. And I think there's been a lot of that. That was the first thought I had. The second I thought of, about is this is an exciting series. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, this is a question I ask all of you. You know, uh, things are exciting when the probability is near 50-50, but that could be because both teams are mediocre. So that's the issue that I'm thinking about. Like, I don't think, like, I'm pretty sure at some point someone will write an article saying this may end up being one of the worst World Series champs of all time. And probably, well, certainly in terms of wins, number of wins, 
if you not use even that, I mean, hold on a sec. What about the 2006 Cardinals? Remember those guys? I don't know how much did they win. Did they win 90? I know. I mean, if the Diamondbacks <laughs> win, they have the Diamondbacks, as you've pointed out, Shane, for a couple of weeks now, actually had a negative run differential and won 84 games. The 2006 so, St. Louis World Champion St. Louis Cardinals were 83 and 78 in the regular season. Okay, by the way, I didn't say the worst. I, I think I said, if I meant the worst. You I did said actually say the worst, but I mean, it's worth clarifying. One of the worst. All I'm commenting on is, I, that's that's the what Kate asked what struck me. Fortunes change very quickly in baseball, potentially on one swing of a bat. And secondly, these seem to be two mediocre teams. So that, that speaks a little, it's a little bit like, you know, bitterness from your teams not being in there multiple teams my team's, the yankees. Not my team's the yankees i was upset that the phillies lost i was surprised the phillies lost two games at home i mean that's a, I, I feel like that's more the salt that like you know dodgers and braves fans are kind of throwing around where they had these amazing teams this okay year but that didn't kind shouldn't of we be a, shouldn't we be a little bit past this now this I mean, maybe not I'm, 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 somewhere I'm, together. i was past it from the get-go this is but. the first time we've been together since the Phillies were eliminated. But otherwise, we are more or less a, you know, well, we're, we're only three games into this series. How would you judge the quality of play directly observing this series? Let's talk about that. Where do you see that things that you're either impressed or not impressed with? So, for example, Seeger's home run yesterday that takes it from 1-0 to 3-0. Um, it was like, I don't know, let's just go to like the peripherals. It was the hardest hit baseball in the stack. Yeah, that guy, that guy, that guy, when he hits the ball or the one to tie it up in game one was like, I mean, it's those kind of swings where you don't even need to see, like, I mean, it's good. They still panned the outfield so you can see where it went, but you know, though it's one well, where then, the pitcher reacts to me yeah, like, okay, that's I right. Did it. That's right. Well, and you know, actually the other play from last night, I think about is actually Seager also the double mm-hmm. play. He turned late. It was, it was, it seven, I think it was seventh inning, bottom of the seventh when the diamondbacks were threatening, they turn a double play to get out brutally tough play to turn and it was against Seager. So, but I'm asking y'all, y'all are the baseball guys. If you were to judge it just from what you watch in the series and set aside the regular season records, how are you judging the quality of the play? Adi. Well, I mean, I think the quality of the play is, is great. And as a game, they're good games. Although I don't think you really can separate that because so much of what's so exciting about baseball. And one of the reasons why you watch a team, even though they're out of it is you get to see the individual performances. And it's almost like you expect in the World Series to be filled to some degree with, with superstars. And we remind you about Corey Seager. He's great. And we haven't seen much of him somewhat recently, but he's fantastic. But beyond that, we got Corbin Carroll, a couple of other you know, star players or rookies, but not much. And it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. Well, Carroll really shown in, uh, in the Philly series, unfortunately. That was, he made his presence very known there. Um, but yeah, the, the, if you're looking for the marquee players, we haven't had, we don't have as much this time around. All right, guys, let's leave the baseball. Let's leave baseball alone and move along to football. We've got two areas to cover both college and pro, but this week is the week that the playoff rankings in college football come out for the first time. And it just, it's kind of a turning point where you start after this week's games or before. No, no, it's tonight, tonight. Tuesday. By the time this show goes up on Wednesday, this will be out. Not that it really matters. I mean, this, I I really was, I was quite dismissive coming into the day about what we're going to learn from the rankings tonight, but I did eventually stumble across one that, that I think does matter. And I'm not, not only because it involves the university of Texas, but first let's just talk a little bit. Let me lay out for you what I claim to be kind of the tiers of playoff contenders. This is kind of the structurally the way this thing is, 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 is breaking out. And I think the most important thing that seems, that seems plain is we have contenders from all five power, power five conferences, and we've only got four slots. And so it, in a way that we haven't seen in a few years, it feels like it could be, that we have a very deserving team left out. Of course, we have to, you know, have to play the games and, and uh, bear it that way. But that's the big picture thing to observe. But then we these, can go do these, these kind of tiers, are these kind of based just on you kind of looking at these teams? Or is it more like kind of like these are the kind of the clusters of kind of probabilities of making the playoffs or winning it, it all or anything like that? This is my this is my qualitative analysis. And it's not it doesn't correspond especially well with with, say, FPIs. Sims, but I'll, I'll, we can talk about where the differences lie. But I'm just going to give you, I'm going to give you an argument. Tier one, clear favorites, very good teams, easy path, and a loss to give. 
And those are Georgia and Florida State. If you want to, in my opinion, if you want to lock anybody in, those would be the two to lock Just in. Just to be clear, you think FSU with a loss makes it? Well, of course, you can't consider any one team in isolation because it always depends on what happens with the teams around the country. And the one-loss teams are going to utterly depend on how many other one-loss teams there are. So, But Florida State has a nice win against LSU. They could give a loss and still have an argument against the Texases and Oregons of the world. It would be an argument, but it also depends on whether the Texases and the Oregons of the world are still floating around with one loss. It also depends on when that loss is and to whom, but yes. 100%. There's a beauty contest aspect to this. Tier two, and look, I could be wrong about all these things. This is just kind of a sketch of the landscape. Tier two, very likely winning in. And this is where you kind of have playoffs going on in different corners of the world. So whoever comes out of the Big 12 is going to go through. Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, it seems very unlikely that somebody doesn't come through that with no more than one loss. Somebody's going to come through with no more than one loss. And and whoever wins the Big 12 out of those three. And just will, to be clear, Kate, in your opinion, if like well forget Penn State just for a second Ohio State beat Penn State if Michigan beats Ohio State but it's a close game is there a chance that a one loss Ohio State team has an argument as well and that they take two from the big 10 or 12 whatever they call it now yeah it's going to be interesting because there's just there's and again it depends on what happens around the country but if you have a one loss conference champion from either the ACC Big 12 or Pac 12 it's going to come down to do you put much more, do you put more value on the conference championship, the actual win? And I always, I'm biased here because I think they should. I think conference championships should matter. They seem to have put a lot of weight on just who's the best team, more than we would have expected from this kind of process over the years. I'm still skeptical they would do that in that situation. I, in a year where there's such broad competitiveness, I would be a little surprised if they went too deep on either the Big 12 or the SEC as long as there were strong contenders that won a conference championship somewhere else. I could be wrong about that, but that would be okay. that's my lean. The other playoff type situations are OU Texas in the big 12. If, 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 the, if somebody makes it through without any more losses, they both have one loss and Washington, Oregon in the Pac-12. Now Washington beat Oregon when they played regular season a couple of weeks ago. But since then, Oregon's looked gangbusters and Washington's looked super sketchy. So if Oregon makes it through without any more losses, and beats Washington or whoever in the Pac-12 championship, it seems very likely. Washington's sitting there with a loss to give. I don't have them in tier one because they've looked so sketchy for the last couple of weeks, and they have a tough schedule because the Pac-12 is so loaded. And then finally in tier two is Alabama. Alabama's only loss is that game against Texas week two. If they keep moving through, they have LSU this weekend, big game this weekend, LSU. Let's just get some details on that. That game is at Alabama. Alabama's a three-and-a-half-point favorite. They'll go on through, win the West, and then face Georgia probably in the SEC championship. They win all those games they're in. There's yeah, no they question. beat LSU and Georgia. They deserve to go. They're going to be in. Yeah, they're going to be they in. Go. And then you'll be asking the same question about Georgia. You just asked me about Ohio State. No, I won't be asking that question. I think if LSU – I think if, it depends, of course, what happens in that Alabama-Georgia game. But I think they would take a one-loss Georgia. I do. Well, that's that that would upset the balance here because it would be tough to turn down two-time national champion, lose only one game in the SEC championship, but you're going to pit that against the Florida States, Texases, or, or Oklahomas and Oregons of the world. Let me drop down to a couple to tier three, small tier. These are teams that are unlikely to win out, but if they do, it make it interesting. LSU and USC for different reasons. USC would only have one loss but they really look sketchy. They beat Cal for God's sake this past weekend by 1.50 to 49. LSU would have two losses and they'd be the only one with two losses. So that's why it'd be interesting. And then there's a tier four of technically alive because they could win out and win their conferences, but they don't seem to have the resume that would make them that competitive, especially in a season with so many viable contenders around the country. But it's an interesting list. You had to pay attention to know that they're still in the mix. Missouri, they're playing Georgia this weekend. It's kind of put up or shut up time for those guys. Ole Miss. Ole Miss is hosting AM this weekend. They only have one loss. They could still win the SEC West. They could still make the SEC championship game. So they're still in the mix. Virginia Tech, surprising one loss. Louisville, surprising one loss. Either one of those teams could make the ACC championship. They could knock off Florida State and they'd have an argument. Let me ask you a question. Is the following informative about tonight's ranking? Let's take two teams. One's ranked let's call it J and another one's ranked just below it at J plus one. 
Okay. Let's imagine both of those teams win out. Okay. How rare do you think it is that team J plus one would pass team J? I understand maybe J plus one wins in blowout fashion. Maybe the teams they play are a little bit stronger, but isn't there some information in the rankings that if, you know, a team that's rated above someone else wins out, it would be at least harder for that team to get passed by a team below it. It's a great question. It's the right question. And I think the answer is harder, but not very hard. And it depends entirely on the path because these teams do play such different schedules. Set aside the beauty contest aspect of it. They could play the same schedules and the committee will still turn it into a beauty contest. And so when they're really close like that in the end, they have shown a willingness to flip even at the very end. So I think it's unlikely that that J versus J plus one ordering means a lot right now. But I do think one of the most one of the most uh, interesting wrinkles in tonight's rankings, because it might have long term ramifications, is exactly one of those. And it's Oregon versus Texas. And that's because those teams very likely could be their conference champions. They're probably the favorite to win the Big 12, I mean, the Pac-12 and Big 12, respectively. And if so, they would both be sitting there with really very similar resumes, and they will have played relatively similar schedules. And if you look at what happens between now and the end of the year, it actually lines up quite analogously. And so I think it's as good a J versus J plus one example as you can ask for. And it's even interesting, the power rankings privilege Oregon right now, but all the strength of schedule and strength of record stuff privileges Texas. Your, so point, your point as an example against my third be doesn't matter where Alabama's ranked, whether they're ranked, look, maybe OU's ahead of them. They're not going to be. Let's pretend they were. doesn't matter. Alabama beats LSU and Georgia. They're going. Yeah, that's that's right. There's so much. That's why I'm not interested in the really in the rankings tonight, because so much football left to play, it's going to get pushed around. But if you look at Texas and Oregon, I mean, there's, you know, odds are they won't come down to those two teams, but it could come down to those two teams. They're stacked up similarly enough to each other that tonight's rankings could have uh, could reveal something that matters long-term. Okay. That's college football rankings and playoff implications. Let's talk a little bit because I'm always trying to pull you guys in. It is a good weekend. I've already mentioned LSU at Alabama. We've got the last bedlam for the foreseeable future. Oklahoma is going into Stillwater six point favorites. Oklahoma state looked like hell early in the season, but they've put together a nice string. Bedlam is almost always interesting. Great fun in Oklahoma this weekend. Texas has its toughest of the remaining regular season games. K-State is in Austin this weekend. Texas is only a four-point favorite. Former starting quarterback Quinn Ewers out still with injury. Dicey, dicey game for Texas. Washington is going down to USC. USC, who barely got by Cal, somehow is only a four and a half point underdog to Washington. Washington, you know, undefeated number three in the country kind of thing. But Washington has not looked good. This is a big Pac-12 game. USC only has one loss in the conference. They can still make the Pac-12 championship, but they've got to win this kind of game in order to do that. USC has looked like dog food over the we last month. Have, we should have done the same game. computation we did a bunch of weeks ago, which is you picked all those close games and you asked us how many expected like yeah. dog wins do we expect in those and something. And and I've actually been following wins against the line. I think there's been a lot of underdog wins in college football. Like for me, I see four and a half points. Adi's going to tell me right now maybe what the probability is. Maybe four and a half translates to 55, 45 or something. But like some somebody else looks at a four and a half point win, a lay person, they might say, well, Washington's a you know modest fan favorite not really they're a minuscule yeah, favorite with the variance in college football that's pretty low Adi yeah I think it's a little bit more than 54 percent even though the variance in college football is pretty big but I would just just ask you Kate in your experience you talk about Washington looking like dog shit um and winning how much does that really statistically matter I mean I mean obviously blowouts matter and, and point differentials do matter but can we really rely on that and, or is it just they have won, they are still undefeated, or is it you're really looking at it as, oh, come on, these were not good teams and they won by little? Well, what's fair is I'm not looking at it with deep analytics because if I had the fundamentals, if I could tell you I've looked at those games and they analytically were, they shouldn't have won those games, then I would put no value on a win on top of that. I'm not saying that. 
but superficially, I, I would not throw out point differential. In fact, there's a lot of information in point differential. And it's also the way they've, when they've squeaked by wins. It's not just the winning close, but you know they're winning on pick sixes against teams they should have beaten by multiple touchdowns. And so, and it's not just one week. One, anything can happen one week. Absolutely anything can happen one week. I put almost nothing on one week. But you put two, three weeks of these performances together, it starts being informative. Let me give you one last bit on college football. What do you think? What do y'all think the lowest over under? This is going to supposedly, I haven't done the research myself. Supposedly the lowest total in college football history. So, I mean, they haven't been doing totals for that long. So presumably this is a finite history. What is the lowest total in college football history? What do you think that number is? You mean the total, the sum of two team scores? The the betting line for total points. Yeah. Total score, saying in a game, over under. Yes, yes. Um, 21 and a half. But if, uh, my first intuition was 19 and a half. Well, well, I'm not talking about the 19. Yeah, yeah, this isn't the twitties, Eric. This isn't, this isn't. Yeah, I mean. Play from with a, helmets on. This is a college Yeah, I'm going to go with the round. I mean, 30 I'm going, I'm going lowest, 40. right? I'm going higher than that. So we have 20, 30, and 40. And we can, okay, we yeah. can crowdsource this for an average of 30. We'd be about right. So 29.5. It is this weekend. It is Iowa and Northwestern this weekend, 29.5, lowest total in college football history. Isn't that amazing? All right. All right, guys. Let's go to the professional division here. Um, what what are y'all paying attention to in the NFL? What is interesting? Well, since we're talking about point totals, one, one kind of observation I have, and I really, again, speaks to the week-to-week variation in the NFL in general and how we already, you know, like week seven or eight are reading too much into it. But it's amazing to me. That was it three weeks ago that the Broncos defense gave up 70 points yep. to the Miami Dolphins. Yep. And this last week they held Mahomes to or and the Chiefs to no touchdowns. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Same defense. Maybe, you know, <laughs> I mean Mahomes may Mahomes maybe had the flu. There's all kinds of extenuating circumstances, but I think the main observation is just week to week variation is very large. Mm-hmm. And that's about that, as but large you know, as Shane, Shane, that's really insane. I mean, that's, that's a giant swing. And uh, is, at what point do we get to ask the question that something is different or something is wrong, right? I mean, and if the answer is not yet, then we would never ask it. Are you, are you right. talking about like, like the Chiefs right now? Yeah, well, no, I'm talking about Denver. I mean, like is Denver, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, one, one, one part of it is Denver probably has improved, you know, I mean, couldn't get much worse compared to letting up 70 points. So they may have changed personnels or like, you know, replaced like kind of scheming, but you know, it is still mostly the same players executing, you know, so just, if, you know, if you just think about it, um, if that, if instead of uh, Shane, that 70 had been still a brutal number, like 45 to 50 and that nine number had been 20, you wouldn't be, you'd be saying, yeah, you know, you can give up 41 week, 20, the next it's just, we're so extreme. Like if there's some sort yeah. of true defensive strength and one week happened to be 21 way, one week happened to be 20 the other way, we get the 70 point gap. But the real difference in their quality is like, it, it's like 30 points from week to week. There could be that much variability. No, no, that's right. And I think that was maybe part of what Wadi was trying to say. Is like, I mean, you want to like to kind of truncate that 70 down to, yeah, I mean, like, you know, that, you know, because games get out of hand. There's lots of right. kind of random kind of, game situations that maybe kind of well once something's extreme it may be like there's some kind of mechanism that makes it more extreme you know or something like that so so yeah i mean i do think that those like probably on sort of the base level those two games are more close to each other than the store scores would kind of represent speaking of what you how do you interpret it what do you think about will levis's debut throwing throwing for the titans uh last the new weekend? mike white the new mike white um, you have to remind me who Mike White is. Goodness gracious. Wasn't he that? He was like that Jets replacement like yeah. last year or two years ago. He came in, I think. Like, he, had, he had one good game. Yeah, he, he like had, had like four touchdowns, then, then, I think, yeah. or some crazy plat pass performance in his first game. And then. Yeah. Okay. I, okay. Let me ask you guys. I was come thinking. On, come on. Oh, go ahead, Adi. Jets fans are still hoping uh, that Aaron Rodgers is coming back. All right. We're still in it. Just want to oh, point yeah. that out while I try, oh, you're while in it, while I drive past the Meadowlands here. You're in it because you're four and three. Let me ask you, this is what I thought about Will Levis's performance. And maybe you guys totally disagree because it's only one game. What I interpreted it as was, all right, so the 
possibility that this guy cannot play in the NFL at all is eliminated. Like, he can play. I didn't say he's going to be good. I didn't say he's going to be great. I didn't say he's going to be a five-year starter. But if we want to put a point mass that some guy you draft really can't play quarterback in the NFL, this guy can play quarterback in the NFL. This Yeah, this start basically, I don't know what happens to his career, but I feel like Will Evans has guaranteed himself backup quarterback positions at a minimum or third string like he's like he yes. even if he doesn't work out as a starter th- that that game itself is enough of a cv item that he could probably get like a backup or third like practice squads job in the I nfl mean, completed for the next like eight of his years. passes through four touchdowns no picks through for over 200 yards and you know as you said Shane, yeah. that's a good resume builder and again to me that shows that whether he's a starter or not, I can't say, but he's at, he deserves to be on some team. Yeah, you're basically sure. saying that, that that kind of performance, you know, puts a floor on just how, yes. you know, like on, on, on kind of his competence as a quarterback. Exactly. I, mean, I, would... I, I just I want to I want to note that one of the exciting parts of this to me is that Will Levis going into his senior year or at least his draft eligible year at Kentucky was considered one of the top quarterback prospects, like a sneaky top quarterback prospect. People were really excited about him. And then his last year, he did not perform as well. And so his draft stock dipped some. And then the last thing I know. Yeah, the other thing is, we obviously have the big game, two big games in the NFL this week. I mean, Dallas at Philadelphia is a huge game now. I mean, obviously we have one loss, Dallas has two. And Miami at Kansas City. I mean, these are two games that may end up deciding who gets home field. Uh, that Kansas City one's in Germany, right? That's at like yeah. 9.30 a.m. on Sunday. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, you yeah, wake up early, everybody. That yeah. I like, but I'm just saying, those games have ramifications. Remember in the NFL, Shane, number one seed gets a bye, too. It's not just home field. It's one yeah, less it's game, and I, I follow the Shane Jensen theory. That's got to at least double your probability. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that Dallas-Philadelphia game is a division game, a rivalry game. It's it's really rich. Philadelphia has been flirting with, you know, not – not great performances they turned they've been they've been getting it through but this is gonna be a great test for those guys all right team that has been the first half of wharton money but we have a guest coming up sam schwartzstein is going to join us in the second half of the show you guys will enjoy that conversation on nfl and production and thursday night production on tv come back and join us after the break you're listening to wharton Moneyball on business radio welcome back Welcome back to Port Moneyball. Welcome back to the second half of this week's show. The second half of our show in the last few months has become our guest segment more often than not. And we're delighted this week to welcome back to the show, Sam Schwartzstein. Sam is Prime Video's Thursday Night Football Analytics expert. He's been working closely with Prime Vision, Next Gen Stats, He's done this for now. This is the second season, I believe, men on the cutting edge of what is the cutting edge of broadcasting football. This, of course, after having helped launch the XFL and before that playing college football at Stanford. Before that, high school football at a prominent Texas high school, South Lake Carroll. We were just talking a little bit about that before we got in. But Sam, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back on. Favorite podcast. (laughs) <laughs> thanks man hey speaking of college football at stanford i just saw your uh twitter feed i don't know how long it's been up there i haven't noticed it before sam is findable on twitter at schwartzstein s i believe at schwartzstein s but he lists on in his in his in his bio twitter bio top rated collegiate offensive lineman in was it 2013 or 14 it was the 2013 iteration of ncaa football all right <laughs> with a parenthetical grade 94 that's that's some credibility right there. Yeah, All right. I mean, people at Tiburon uh, Studios, a part of EA Sports, they really know they have their finger on the pulse of the at the time nameless, faceless, uh, <laughs> possibly name image likeness issue with right. uh, those ratings. But that the avatar that was me was the 94 overall as the number one offensive line. <laughs> they can never take that away. That's right. Cling to it. Um, listen, man, we uh, we're always happy to catch up with you. We've been talking with you maybe annually for the last few years. And um, and then we were delighted to see some great press around an, an innovation you have in broadcasting football using machine learning 
but it feels to me kind of like the killer app. You know, you're kind of, you've got good stuff. You've got, you know, you've got all this potential and then all of a sudden, bam, you've got the killer app and everyone's paying attention. And all of a sudden technology can really make a difference in the way the game is experienced real time. And it feels like this might be that. And I'm talking of course about the blitz identification package that y'all unveiled a couple of weeks ago. Can you tell us a little bit about what you think that means? What's it, what's the, what has been the implication once that thing hit and what do you think it means for what comes next? And we'd love to go backwards as well and hear about building it. But first let's just talk about what, how big a deal do you think it actually is? Well, I think what you guys do and what prime vision does aligns and it's wanting to make smarter football fans. And it's wanting to find new ways, new ways to look at at the sports we love right now. We're like Thursday night football and football that way. And, Last year, we unveiled something called Prime Targets, where we highlight a player with a green orb when they're uh, more than likely going to convert a first down. Not saying that there's other players who aren't open or you should always throw to that player, but hey, it's a good time to throw to that player. And there was like a rules-based heuristics model, and we kind of tested, hey, how can we provide this guided viewing experience uh, so people can watch during the play, know where to put their eyes before the camera just tracks the quarterback and you lose all the wide receivers, you don't see where they're going. But when you combine what we're doing on Prime Vision with next-gen stats, the all-22 camera angle, and then the player graphics, on-screen graphics that we're providing to give you that guided viewing experience so you can see everything, but then we're directing your eyes. Mm-hmm. What this offseason gave us the opportunity is to look at what we're using on the machine learning side um, with our team all around the world, identifying how do we make a guided viewing experience but make it from a machine learning standpoint, not like the basic football rules of what we know, you know, prime targets is very much who has the most grass with ability to just convert a first down, but now it's machine learning and let the machine take over and identify from inputs what's a more likely output and give it that whole process. And so throughout this off season, we're able to work with the team that's uniquely Amazonian that has engineers and machine learning capabilities to be able to process this information, but then focus on it, not from a problem solving on the team side or the league side, but from a viewer's experience side. So how do we recreate how I watch the game as an offensive line, as a center, as a, you know, my best friend's Andrew Luck, and how we watch the game identifying the fronts of the defense, to identify who's going to blitz. We're now being able to use machine learning to recreate a lot of the same things we do and then see even more to give that viewer that experience that a person who has 20-plus years of football experience is able to watch the game. Now a viewer coming off the couch can see that same type of thing. Did you, did you, Shane's down to get in. Let me ask one follow-up and then we'll get to Shane. Did you ever anticipate, so the way this works for those who haven't seen it, the, 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 the TV is highlighting players that they anticipate blitzing as the guys are at the line of scrimmage, as the quarterback is making the call and the, and the highlights are kind of coming on and off as it reaches some threshold, according to the machine learning algorithm. And Sam has talked about this, about being surprised by some of the players thinking, what's wrong with this, with this algorithm, but then being wrong, his judgment being wrong, the machine learning judgment being right. Did you ever imagine when you were building this thing or, or guiding the team that was building it, that, that it was going to be able to see blitzers that you, uh, uh, a, 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 an experienced college football player and follower wouldn't see that it would you know, go beyond your own expertise. And that that's been, what's so fascinating is, we don't have, we're using the uh, RFID tracking chips. So it's X, Y coordinate data, right? And, you know, I was using, the first thing we started out was a heuristics rules model called Beat Sammy, which was, I know that uh, there's a certain amount of eligible wide receivers. If it's trips over here, they need to have at least three people defending those people. If it's two, that guy can't blitz. So let's look the other side of the field, the safety rotation, if the safety's down, there's all those rules that we had. And the machine learning model, the engineer's like, just, just send us who blitzes and then we'll be able to figure out this out. Right. Yeah, right. And, and the, the conversations were more about how do we focus on which players are uniquely blitzing versus how do we not just juice up our numbers to where, you know, if you predict that Dexter Lawrence is going to rush every play, he rushes 99% of the plays that actually will right. not influence the model. So the conversation about how do we actually influence the, the categories of who, who fits what modeling, what was so interesting is they're able to predict uh, zone blitzes probably better than I can just from TV copy. If I was playing center on the field, I could see a guy might have a light hand, but that's been probably the biggest innovation so far is, you know, I'm looking at the numbers and I go, there's two over, over three, this guy can't rush, mm-hmm. but then there's a, they're, they're able to spot a dropper even with X, Y, only X, Y coordinated without pose data. 
And so that's been one of the more interesting processes is they're able to see some of the stuff that you should really only see when you're, you're playing the, on the line, but they're able to see a lot of this unique stuff. And that's where I'm mostly wrong is, oh, there's a dropper here or there that I couldn't predict from the high up. Can, can you say, and, and Shane, I'm sorry, I just got to do one more follow up on this. Can you say just a touch more about that? Like, how are they doing that? So I let me decode, I think, what you just said. You said if you're at, over the ball at center, if you see a guy with a light hand, meaning he's he's in a three-point stance, but he's not committed to coming forward, you, you think he's going to drop, then you might be more suspicious of a of two DBs over three receivers because one of those guys might come in, the other guy's going to drop out. You're saying, okay, you can see that if you're on the line of scrimmage. How do you, How is it that the algorithm is seeing something like that? How are they identifying droppers, as you say, off the line of scrimmage into places that you wouldn't expect? So I think – I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say they're identifying droppers. They're identifying the capability that someone can rush in that scenario. Right. And so I, I'm looking, I'm trying to process okay. it. And okay. from the machine learning standpoint, like we don't identify droppers, right? I think I, I spoke a little bit there, but what from the machine learning standpoint, and I want to go a little bit more technical for your audience is they're identifying guys who can blitz, right? That, that the quarterback and the offensive line should be worried about. And in the okay. scenarios where they're picking out a player to blitz that I'm wrong on as a, as a viewer, Yep. It's because the model is able to pick up some sort of inference that, hey, this guy is going to drop. And that and- model, that, that's not just based on spatial, like the kind of spatial like configuration, what's happening, like as the snap's happening. That's also based on background information on the particular personnel involved and stuff like that, right? It's that wasn't my question, pers- by the way. It was based on personnel, but not that specific. It's trained on the entire NFL. Gotcha. So I'm not going to go like I, that. And that actually dovetails a lot with the question I originally had, which was um, um, what you, you know, I saw one of the kind of interesting things I saw while watching the telecast is you had some really interesting stuff like, you know, Chris Godman's like performance and when he's a slot versus wide receiver, I was wondering how much of that is, you know, kind of something a machine, like an algorithm has said, like, oh, it turns out, like, I, I searched all the data and this is like a particularly big performance tri- difference across all the players. Or is that more something that, you know, somebody who knows football like yourself knew ahead of time, well, I know Chris Godwin plays in these two different kind of configurations. I'm going to kind of, you know, make sure that's something part of the telecast as opposed to something that was almost like empirically generated. Yeah, what makes uh, Prime Vision great is we have a great team that's we're on the production side. So we start on Fridays watching the film for our upcoming game. And then we're looking at what the likelihood or what, not like what the uh, players and what makes that team identity. So I start every game with the identity check and say, what makes this team unique with Chris Godwin played a ton of slot when it was Brady and Mike Evans on the same side. So they worked the two man game a lot. So we looked at what were they doing this year? So uh, Alex Strands, our, our coordinated producer, we have Josh Friedenberg, Scott Carpin, Akeem Boyd, Matt Diamond, Bettina Shore, all these people are working together to identify which uh, are the key takeaways that we need to find from an analytics perspective to tell that story. So not just, it's not automated that we're putting this stuff up. And then our next gen stats team, Keegan and Mike Band and Chase, everyone, they're filling us also with data, both both pregame and in real time. Adi, jump in here. Adi's dialing in from a train, but I think we can get him. Yeah, I can. I, I'm really fascinated by the discussion, and I love the app. But as a statistician, I'm always curious to know whether or not it's been tested in a way that uh, shows you, I, I guess, analytically that it works, or is it just very anecdotally? You kind of like it, it makes sense. Sometimes misses, sometimes doesn't. Do you have anything that's more concrete that, that tells us it really does a good job? So what what is unique about us is we build a TV product first, and so um, there are probably different. I'm, I can't go into our exact precision and recall numbers, but if the model fits what uh, I would do as an offensive lineman, it, it then it works for us right now. We'll do more research on it from a from a stats perspective on like disguise blitzes and things like that. I know that we're good on the down and distances that matter from when I trained uh, uh, playing. But one of the more unique things is we're we're also able to identify certain situations that you couldn't identify blitzes before. Different, hey, because we're doing everything pre-snap. We don't know if it's a pass or a run. So there's different ways that you can see a team calling a, a blitz on a run. Now we don't track those stats right now, but those are things that you're able to see when a, there's a called run blitz. If you're watching two players light up and then there's a run blitz, you can see that. And we've seen really cool plays where offensive lines have taken advantage of identifying the run blitz and then getting big gains off of that and vice versa. Uh, we saw there was a clip from the athletic that they posted t- Ted Wynn 
where a corner blitz triggered and we were able to show that and it stopped a run. So there are some cool things that blitzes were typically a pass um, metric before. And now we're able to see it on runs, which no one else has that, that metric. Um, so it's, it's, it's a little bit unique, but the audience, and then I, I showed this to my legion of nerds, football nerds, well, you know, Andrew Luck, Jeff Schwartz, Nate Tice, uh, uh, Andrew Phillips, uh, David Shaw, my community of, of football people. Hey, would you, would you make these same kind of predictions, these same kind of calls? So does that align with what we're doing? So it's vetted, not just by me, but by a collection of football experts that this was their job was identifying potential blitzers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, Sam, t- uh, it's really one question but with two parts. One, has the precision and recall of this um, improved over time? Like, have you noticed, like, what is it? Le- is it a learning mechanism by which as you get more data, its predictions are improving? And secondly, what kind of data are you building this on? Like, could you build it on video data? Could you build it on, could expert, maybe this is part Shane's question too, could experts put something into this model? Like, so that's kind of a two-part question, but really the same question. What's going to make this algorithm better? And are you noticing it getting better? Yeah, we're, we're always committed to making it better. Um, there's tons of different things. You've mentioned a lot of the different things about getting it better. Since we started, it's gotten a lot better, right? Um, I think a big breakthrough was being able to identify that Vaughn Miller plays outside linebacker and there are people who play off the ball as outside linebacker as well, right? The four, three, three, four hybrid defenses changes how we identify being able to train the model in unique ways. So that was, that was a big step. Um, I think there's definitely, definitely areas we want to go. I can't give everything away. Uh, you know, my product, I would go crazy over that. He still may go crazy over this, but uh, uh, we, we have a, a ton of stuff that we're willing to add onto this. And this, I think that's what makes uh, Amazon so uniquely positioned to be able to do things like this is this is what Amazon does best is integrating technology to the, to the end customer experience. So there's a lot of stuff that we're excited about a lot of stuff that we're wanting to do. Um, This is just the beginning. Sam, listening to you talk, it strikes me that you're very much in the television production business. You yourself are part of these teams whose job it is to put on this, this production and it's, and it's doing great, right? And the numbers, these streaming numbers you guys are getting is, is, are fantastic. Um, but what is it? What have you learned over your time in that role about communicating analytics? Um, about the about the di- dialectic between entertainment and education. You always say we're here to make people smarter, but it, but you have to keep them educated in, in order for in order for them to be interested in getting smarter, right? So, in, as analysts and educators ourselves, we're always interested in this question: how what how can we be more effective in communicating analytics? What have you learned on that question over the last two years? Uh, I think earning trust is so important and and you do it in different ways. Uh, the first one was how do I make uh, my coworkers smarter in scenarios, right? How do I make Richard Sherman and Andrew Whitworth and Ryan Fitzpatrick? How do I help them in those scenarios? Al Michaels, there's something funky going on with the spread. Al and I, can we talk about, can he, he ask me what, what is, what do you think is happening here? Right. And so there's different things that you can do to gain trust that way. Defensive alerts has been a huge value add. Hold on real quickly, Sam. What, what you jumped to without saying it explicitly was, and I've heard, we've heard this from other people in television production. You, you got to have the front line forward, the, the, the customer facing Purdue, the guys in the booth on your side or else nothing's going to go anywhere. And you just named a bunch of guys who are either doing the broadcast or they're doing the halftime discussion or whatever. And you're saying, I got to earn their trust because they are essentially our mouthpiece in talking about these things. Super interesting. Okay. So I'm sorry, you go ahead. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, that's the end all be all is this is football at the end of the day. Right. And I think as you've, if you've seen the production change from last year to this year, we're trying to even base prime vision more football first. Uh, uh, there's also my goal of every metric that you should see or every every player headshot on Prime Vision will have success rate. I personally like EPA per dropback or EPA per play more. I think it tells a more fluent story, but trying to get my audience to, or the, the you know, the non-hardcore football fan or the hardcore Grand Alex fan to see fractional points, that throws people off a little bit. So mm-hmm. success rate has been mine where it's like, this is what I want to see next year on the main broadcast. After completion percentage, there should always be success rate. After there should always be, we call it the fourth M. Yeah. Four should always be success rate. And then at least we're giving there, hey, that's that early thing. And it was very funny. There's still people were talking as a team. They're like, well, what's a good success rate? I go, 
any, I, I thought it was intuitive. Anything greater than 50%, you should be excited about because more often than not, you help your team. But I was going to say, moving to success rate is more kind of trying to calibrate towards something people inherently understand. Like, I think EPA per play is obviously a little bit more informative, but people don't really, they don't know how to norm that relative to what a good versus bad. You know, we, we don't know, I guess, enough as fans about the distribution of that value. So if you That's were to right. provide that, you'd have to kind of talk about a percentile or something like that of it or something in, in addition. And, and we do rankings on our broadcast because, you know, even though percentiles are probably a more uh, informative way of doing things, rankings, you know, they're saying that we compare everyone against each other. That's what talking heads do. And so rankings have been a, a baseline for everything we show. If we show an analytic, where does this rank in 32 teams? Where does this rank in qualified quarterbacks? Just so that, that people who may not know that number, we're now telling you that. But then it always has to come back to football. And so when we're talking about uh, what we found success in some of the hits I've done is if we're able to bring this back to football, we're not talking, here's a big number, here's a small number. That's when people have been able to latch onto it and say, oh, this was insightful versus if it's just a number and like, this is how I'm seeing the game. I'm, I'm going to follow the numbers here. Not everyone does that. And so if you can relate it back to football, whether it's, you know, the tush push, we were ahead of it early talking about that technique and all that stuff, but it was analytics that drove them to go for it on more fourth downs. It was even ownership saying, go for it on more fourth downs here because I have analytics that tell me. And then the coaches had to go design a play. So there's all these different mm -hmm. things. That, as we can be more informative that way, it helps It helps get the audience to buy into what we're doing. Back to Adi on the train to New York. God. Uh, yeah, I'm really interested in your play success metric. And I guess the response I have is, um, I don't. do people really understand 50% or 25? Because I think you have to be, you're typically successful less than that. And remember, you have four chances. So it's very hard to figure that out. And if any comment has to do with rankings, one of the things about rankings is that they jump all over the place and there could be two and four and five. And the difference between, say, 14 and 20 might be immaterial. And that can also be very confusing. So uh, I just want to get, hear your response on how you kind of make sense of all, all that. Yeah, I think I think with with rankings, at least there's even though they jump around, there's some sort of static part of it. Everyone, if you're watching the NFL, you more than likely know there's 32 teams, so you know near the top four, you're in that that highest echelon, bottom four, and then at 16, you know. So at some capacity, there's a, there's a knowledge base there versus 99th per first. I don't know if the average football fan's going to know that right off the top of their head, right? And we're dealing with you know Thursday night football. Uh, crowd so I think that that's that's one there and then you're right I I was probably assuming more so that everyone would assume that 50 percent is where over 50 percent is where you'd want to be on success rate because that means you're helping your team more often that even if you knew nothing you'd want to have an over 50 percent success rate but just be also off that stat successful stat so it, and, I, it, and I think the success rate also I mean it's you know it, it helps for relative comparisons real like much better even like than like like you need two two different two different plays having like a 0.01 EPA difference. We probably could figure that out, but it's easier to think about like, Oh, this is, you know, going for kicking a field goal from this down and distance is 56% going forward on fourth down is 72%. Oh, he just dropped back into shotgun. Now that's down to 30% or whatever type of thing. So I think, you know, that's really where I think probability kind of like, if you're on the screen, like I think it's all about relative comparisons where you could, yeah, again, base down baseline, certain strategic in-game decisions relative to kind of what historically the other side would have done, like kicking a field goal versus going forward or something. Right. And, and, you know, the NGS definition for success rate is, did you have a positive EPA play or not? So we're really nesting EPA within success mm -hmm. rate. The traditional success rate metric, right, from the hitting game of football is 50% on first down, 70%, second down, third, 100%, third and fourth down. So, you know, we and then NGS has their time-based EPA, which is a little bit different than some other place, other other metrics. So we're able to like where that's how we're focused on doing it. And I'll be honest, the first time I presented success rate on television last year, I used the original definition to make it under more understandable. Uh, and the guys at NGS were like, you know, it's not the real definition for what you're showing. And I was like, yeah. I know, no, just let's let's spoon feed a little bit before I'm going to hit them over the head next year with success rate every every time I can. I, I love this conversation in general. There's something, there's something, there is something quite general about it. And it is that one, we have to communicate in the language that our audience understands. We have to try, we have to do the translation form. We have to do that work essentially. 
So in both of these cases, you're talking about, I think they're much more schematic for this scale. So I'm going to use that scale instead of this other one. The other thing is, in all these cases, we think we're giving them information that's a little bit compromised. It's not as good as we could do, but it's going to matter more because it's in their language. And so they'll actually use it. So it'll actually mean something. They'll pay attention to it. So we're willing to degrade the information a little bit if it actually increases the take up. And that's a that's a very general theme. And it's, it's hard for analysts to, to, to make those compromises sometimes, but you're, but those, those who like yourself, Sam, are on the front lines, whose job it is to get this stuff across, realize the more effective ways to do it and the trade-offs that are worth making. And super, Katie, super interesting. Kate, you put it perfectly. We have a mantra from Steve Hurt, who helps on the analytics uh, side for the main broadcast. He's one of the early people. He, he helped devise running runners in scoring position. And when he talked about history of creating that stat, he said, I know it's not the perfect stat, but it really helps people understand how pitching and batting is taking place at different parts of the game. It's not perfect. So his mantra was 90% purity, 100% understanding. And so that's how we go into this is, you know, look, I know it's not going to be the success rate. Is not the perfect? Is it, isn't the best metric to understand how much team guys helping his team versus another metric EPA, but it's not, I get 90% of the understanding there or 90% of the purity. Here's a hundred percent understanding. They get that. Oh, did you help her team? Yes or no there. It's, right. it, it aligns with what we already see in completion percentage stacked right next to it. There are two percentages that can go up to a hundred. Right. Right. Terrific. All right, man. Well, listen, uh, rather than badger you with what's next, tell us what's coming next, because that's what we're curious about. We know you can't speak about that stuff. We will just tune in on Thursday nights to find out. But we wish you the best with all that you're doing, Sam. We love that you, the work that you're doing. Thanks so much. And thanks. Uh, a few of you guys were able to do our off-season survey. So expect another one coming out uh, at the end of the year as well. We're here for it, man. Sam Schwarzstein, Prime Video's TF TNF analytics expert. He is one of the main drivers behind what they're doing with Prime Vision and Next Gen Stats and a frequent guest here on Wharton Moneyball. That's been the whole show, guys, for the whole crew here. Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen. This has been Cade Massey on behalf of Maddie Datz, the boss man, Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>